Welcome to the Act and Unwind podcast, an ongoing conversation on a free and virtuous society. I'm your host, Eric Cohn. I want to thank you for listening, and I want to ask that if you're listening to us on our website at acton.org, you can now navigate to the show notes for this episode where you will find a link to subscribe directly to Acton Unwind at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else you listen to find podcasts. And if you like this program, please leave us a five-star review at Apple Podcasts so as to help more people find this show. This week, I'm joined by Sam Gregg, Acton's Director of Research, and Stephen Barrows, Chief Operating Officer here at Acton. Today, we'll be discussing people avoiding discussing anti-Semitism and President Biden's speech on voting rights. But first, I want to go to work, which would make me somewhat unique in that there was – well, I, I bring this up because I saw it was last Sunday, not, not last night, uh, a week ago Sunday, an interesting piece on 60 Minutes about – uh, the big quit or the great resignation, whatever uh, we've not yet decided which of those two terms we're going to call it. But the the current state of work in America right now, and let me lay out some of the information that they provided in that piece. Currently, over 20 million people quit their jobs in the second half of 2021. Uh, that is a record. Uh, the unemployment rate right now is at 3.9%. 6.3 million people are listed as unemployed. Two and a half million have filed for unemployment claims recently. Ten and a half million job openings are currently out there. Uh, and to give you a concept of just uh, the, the the gravity, the significance of that, I'm looking at data right now from uh, the St. Louis uh, Federal Reserve. And if we go back to just uh, looking here, it's about 2000 to now. Uh, the lowest point of it was July of 2009, where there was about 2.2 million job openings. Um, even uh, if we go to January of 2021, we're talking 7 million. So now we're up to 10 and a half million current job openings in the United States. Uh, where are those job openings located? 4.4% of education jobs are open, 6.3% open in retail, 8.2% open in healthcare, and there are about 350,000 open construction jobs right now. Um, another quite fascinating statistic, pre-pandemic, one out of every 67 jobs was remote. Today, it's about one out of seven. So we have seen a huge change in the labor market, in the job market. And what I want to get into is why are we seeing this? I mean, there's the obvious answer that we could all give, right? Everything we can uh, ascribe to the pandemic being the, the number one cause of all of this. But you know, most of these things are an overdetermined phenomenon. There are lots of things going on there. We see just these staggering numbers in terms of open jobs. Sam, what do you make of it? Well, thanks very much, Eric. I think there's a number of things going on because I think, as you correctly point out, there's no monocausal explanation for this. It may be the case that the pandemic has accelerated certain trends or caused some people to think differently about different ways in which they integrate their work into their life. There may be some specific economic causes as well. But I find it interesting when I look at what people give as their reasons for quitting, what's causing the great resignation. So I went on and looked at some of the, the data that's available and 
here's some numbers which I find interesting. So first of all, the biggest cause, at least according to, according to um, some data I found on Forbes, is low salary. 67% of Americans are not satisfied with their salary. 66% of people quitting said they had limited career opportunities. 65% said they were not valued by their manager. 64% said that they didn't really have a good relationship with their colleague. Uh, then you get into pandemic things. So there was uh, one number is 64% said inadequate pandemic measures had something to do with their reasons for living, leaving. Poor employee benefits, 64%. Wanting to change job industry entirely, 62%. And it goes on down these different numbers. And what I find interesting is that the pandemic doesn't feature as the number one reason for why people are doing this. Now, it may be the case that the pandemic has opened up people's willingness to make the leap because a lot of people had their lives, work lives, family lives disrupted severely as a consequence of the lockdowns that followed uh, the pandemic and the constant uncertainty surrounding those sorts of things. But it may be the case that there was there was a lot of different reasons, a lot of pent up, if you like, frustration with different aspects of life in the labor market. And the pandemic, in, maybe in some respects, opened up people's minds to the possibility of, well, maybe I'll just go do something else. Or I'm just going to check out for a while. Now, the federal government and different state governments providing people with money for nothing, of course, in some respects, provided a safety net for people to engage in this type of stepping back, making some sort of fundamental reassessment of why they're doing what they're doing. But it does seem that the case that, at least according to some of the data I'm reading, people are not willing to settle for situations in which they find themselves deeply dissatisfied with some aspect of their work. So I think there's many reasons, but I think looking at that and getting in some of the data and why people are doing this, I think it does point in the direction of people saying, I'm not going to accept certain things as part of my future career, my future work. I'm going to wait. I'm going to look around and find something that truly gives me satisfaction. And when enough people are willing to do that, then you have these millions of people quitting the workforce. Yeah, the the highest quit rates we're seeing in retail and in hospitality. You know, I back when I was a teenager, waited tables for a while. Anybody who's waited tables probably tell you it's not the most glamorous job. It's not the most fun job. I think I think it's a good job for people to have. I, I think it's one of those. You know, I, I would never mandate any kind of form of national service or anything. But if everybody could just wait tables for a day, it would change your whole perception of your own restaurant experience and all of that. So in a way, if if that's if these are the fields where we're seeing the highest quit rates, a lot of what Sam was saying makes total sense to me, that it's the less glamorous jobs, the jobs that are less attractive to people, um, that are maybe more frustrating, that offer less flexibility. Certainly, one uh, cannot wait tables remotely, so it doesn't offer that kind of flexibility. 
That would seem to make sense. And you would expect to see employers and the labor market adjust for all of these things, that you would expect to see wages go up. You would expect to see, and we are seeing, I think, you know, I I drive by in Applebee's and see that they're advertising something like, you know, $20, $22 an hour, so well over even the $15 an hour uh, minimum wage that Bernie Sanders was insisting that everybody needed. And offering things like $500 signing bonuses for people to join. And yet there's still like so many other people in retail and hospitality having a hard time finding people to take those jobs. So Steve, looking at this as an economist, how do you make heads or tails of, you know, not just the quit part of this that we've been talking about, but the way that the labor market and employers have been adjusting to it and seemingly still not finding a lot of success in attracting people back to work. Well, a couple of things, you know, I think the things that have been said to date about the reasons why people are leaving their jobs are spot on. One of the things I think that employers are, are facing is that the employees are effectively in the driver's seat. <clears throat> you know, if you had a situation like we did, uh, you know, 18 months ago where unemployment was extremely high, the job dissatisfaction that people might experience, whether it be with their manager or pay and benefits that weren't satisfactory to them, they would simply say, well, I'm going to grin and bear it because my outside options are fairly low. And now you're finding a situation where individuals are in the driver's seat. And so they may have been reflecting on on transferring jobs previously, and now they're actually acting upon it because, as you mentioned, there are millions and millions of job openings out there. What makes this what makes this different, though, right? So there, there have been, throughout my lifetime, there have been plenty of circumstances where, you know, I've heard it described that, you know, oh, it's a, it's a, a worker's market, it's a, an employee's market right now. Uh, but we didn't see, is it just the pandemic? Um, it, we didn't yeah. see the same kind of consternation and certainly not the same kind of numbers that we just went through there we didn't see before. Yes, yeah, so it's interesting. Let me let me contextualize this a little bit because the quit rates that we were hearing cited in, in the press are, are only, within the context of the past 20 years where they've been measuring those things, at least in this, uh, in, in the way that they're measuring it now. And so previously they'd, they'd met, done similar measures, say in specific industries like manufacturing. So we can say that we're at a peak quit rate within the past two decades that this has been being measured. So it is different over this previous two decades, but we don't know for sure. There's probably good evidence that quit rates were very high at other periods in, in, in history. In the most recent past though, I think what, you're seeing several things. First of all, people did get an unusual opportunity in the aggregate to experiencing something different, namely working from home. And I think that caused individuals to reflect a little bit more about just flexibility, right? I mean, jobs that have be, do have some inherent flexibility, people are now looking and seeking for that. And I think a number of employers are are now accommodating that, uh, that, that desire for flexibility. I think you do still have some pockets where people are anxious about what's going to happen, especially if they have uh, children and whether or not those children are going to have uh, adequate care if they if they shut down the schools and do remote instruction. And so I think you're finding people, again, being hesitant to, to retain a job that may not allow them that flexibility. So I do think that what we've experienced during the pandemic has contributed to people reflecting more on what they want to do with their current job or what they want to quit. Can I add one point to uh, what Steve was saying there? I also wonder, and I don't have good data for this, so I'm speculating, I do wonder whether it's a type of generational, a generational change as well. I certainly notice when I'm, for example, lecturing or speaking to people who are below the age of, say, 30, they do seem to have a different attitude towards work 
than people who are in their late 30s, 40s, and 50s. And I don't mean that they're lazy. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is that they do seem to be looking at the workforce much more selectively and thinking very, very carefully about what it is that they want to do with their lives. And I happen to think that's a good thing insofar as I think that work is so defining of how so many of us uh, live our lives. Work has a transformative effect upon what we do, who we do it with, the types of different uh, individuals with whom we interact. And it does seem to me that there's an emerging generation within the workforce that is asking some serious quality of life questions when it comes to issues of what they want to do with their lives. I've even noticed when I've gone and spoken at business schools where you often find some of the most dynamic, go-getting young people, etc., I've noticed that those who want to go and work in, say, finance and work for 60 hours a week for four years and then move on to something else, that seems to have diminished significantly. So I, I am wondering, and I don't have good data for this, but I'm, I'm working now purely upon experimental, experiential data points. I am wondering whether there is a type of attitudinal change that's gone on among younger Americans and younger Europeans, for that matter, when it comes to these sorts of issues and whether we're seeing some of that emerging now, not least because the pandemic, if you like, uh, gave an opportunity for some of these people to think this way that maybe I can actually make these types of decisions in this way. And they may not have thought of that until the pandemic came along and suddenly changed the labor market in a very short period of time. Mm, yeah. In in that 60 Minutes piece, uh, in the very beginning of it, they talked about, well, who is leaving the job market? And it's a lot of baby boomers, which is not unsurprising. A lot of them are already approaching retirement age. If they weren't there already, perhaps the events of the last two years were just kind of a, eh, you know, is it really worth it? I'm just going to go ahead and retire now. But also, as I think Sam's alluding to here, a lot of Gen Zers, a lot of people who are 30 and under. And again, I, I don't have data on this as well. I'm speaking both anecdotally and, and speculating on this as, as well as Sam was. But I see similar things in the way that you know the 30 and under crowd looks at, talks about employment. There's a contemptuousness. I'm um, uh, an older millennial. There's a contemptuousness with the way that uh, that younger generation talks about the the hustle culture that was so, kind of so defined millennials. Um, they are disdainful of it and the idea that one needs to do such things, that you know you have a day job, but then you also have a secondary job that is something like your passion and are looking for, you know, kind of a, as Sam was suggesting there, a better work-life balance. Um, I, I think you're also, seeing that people are a, a product of the circumstances that come to define them. So if you're talking about somebody who's roughly 30 years old right now, well, what was going on, you know, a little more than 10 years ago when they were probably just exiting college and about to enter the workforce, and that's the Great Recession. Um, so they've, the, the, the key points in their lives economically work speaking have been an enormous global recession and a global pandemic that has completely changed the nature 
of the workforce, of how things have operated, the kind of expectations you would have seen previously that, you know, you're a young person, you're in high school, and you go and get some kind of a job. Uh, with the, the wealth of the society like this is accumulated, doesn't necessitate that so many people do that. Maybe parents, again, I don't know this for sure, other than anecdotal observations, are pushing kids less to do that, to build that kind of work ethic by getting a low-level minimum wage job while they're in high school. It, it's just undeniable to me that circumstances have dramatically changed and they seem to have changed in a way that we have not seen before. Yeah, I think there's something to that. And again, I don't have the data either to just to reference quickly, but but it does seem that younger generations are more inclined to, to switch and to see if something's working out for them. They're not going to stick with the company for 45 years and then get the gold watch and retire, right? So uh, I, it, there are, I do have some data, though, that's not directly uh, connected to quit rates, but it's related, and that is uh, uh, indirectly related, and that is uh, employment levels, right? And employment levels across the United States are still down about 3 million from before the Great Recession, so December 2019 to December 2021. And so when thinking through the reasons why people are quitting, I also wanted to ask myself, why aren't people necessarily returning to work? Because of course, the unemployment rate is very low, and there's lots of job opportunities out there. Well, as it turns out, by cohort, the group that is by on a percentage basis, which has the lowest or the greatest decline of employment over those two years and people not returning to work are actually those in the 45 to 54 year, 10 year age group. So people sort of career prime, right? 45 to 54 year olds. Um, and of course, women higher rates uh, uh, than men of not returning to work. And there's all sorts of reasons why that could be the case. There could be childcare uh, concerns or, or what have you. And men also in that age group are, have, have not returned to the levels of employment that we've seen uh, of, of all those demographic cohorts. So it is interesting to see how this labor market is churning. And we'll see. I, I don't think this is going to be permanent. I do think you're going to see a significant change in the nature of work, but I don't think you're going to see quit rates continue at the pace that they've been. One other last related note from an economic standpoint, Jason Furman of Harvard University points out that the single biggest predictor of future inflation over the past 20 years was the prior year's quit rate, okay? So people who think that inflation is just transitory, well, we might be in for a surprise. If quit rates continue here, as they have been, of course, it's going to drive up the cost of labor, which then you're going to see in, in the price of goods and services in the marketplace. To uh, echo David Bonson, who we had on this podcast uh, back at the end of, not on this podcast, but on our sister podcast, Act in Line, at the end of last year, uh, I, I, I like this point. I bring it up when, whenever we're discussing inflation now because we, we had that conversation about transitory inflation and all of that. The point that he made to me was – Unless your contention is that prices are just going to continue ever and ever upward forever and ever, all inflation is transitory. The question is how long run it's going to be with us. And I think that the suggestion is that like as, as we're seeing the numbers that continue to come out, it's certainly longer run than people had initially suggested. Now, whether this gets us into you know something that looks like the late 1970s, uh, that that has yet to be seen. Although I will note that Vice President Kamala Harris did actually use the word malaise uh, a couple weeks ago, which is probably not the best uh, image to be invoking if one wants to dispel the notion that this is going to be a repeat of the 1970s. Um, Steve, I. Sam had brought this up, and I, I want to get your perspective on this again as an economist. The 
One of the things that we did have over the course of the pandemic, which was unusual, we've always had things like unemployment insurance, people's ability to file for all of that. Uh, But we had unemployment insurance. You had a supplement on top of the unemployment insurance. We three different times just sent checks out to people to really almost anybody who was going to get them. If you were a parent within uh, a certain defined income range until basically for all half of last year, you were getting a uh, payment from the federal government as form of a child tax credit. We've been sending people a lot of money. We saw the accumulation of savings to a level that we hadn't seen in quite a while. So in a way, to me, uh, as a, a layperson here, not an economist, don't even play one on TV, I'm looking at all of this and thinking, well, I can understand why people didn't rush right back to work. It's not as if you know they turned off the spigot on unemployment money and that was all anybody had available to them and people are going to start rushing back to work. You know, There's still unemployment insurance as it exists. So there's going to be a, a level of people, a, a range of people that the amount of money that they're making from unemployment is close enough to what they were making before that they don't feel compelled to go back to work. But you also have people who can live off of whatever accumulated savings they had from the checks that had been sent out. How much did that fiscal response to the pandemic, how much is that impacting what we've been talking about, what we're seeing right now in the job market. Well, there have been some preliminary studies that use a difference in differences approach based on when certain states decided to pare back their unemployment insurance and the extra money that they were receiving. So some states time this differently than others, and that gives a great so-called natural experiment for economists to see how much that had an impact. And actually, the impact is fairly modest. So at least in terms of the unemployment benefits that people were receiving and the checks that they were receiving based on state data, it seems fairly modest. However, uh, what does seem to be the case is that to the extent that people were able to accumulate savings, that probably does have a, an influence on people's willingness to consider switching jobs, um, especially if they don't secure one initially. Now, many of these people who have quit rates, uh, they've already secured their job, right? And therefore, they know they're going to have a paycheck and they're just going to move from one job to another. For those who just quit and take some time off and then explore for a job later, the question then becomes, can they absorb that the periods where they're not in the workforce with the savings that they've accumulated and pay their bills? And so I do think there is some influence there where those who who had accumulated some savings could could have that transition time. Uh, but as far as the overall uh, impact on employment uh, due to unemployment insurance based on the state-to-state data, it seems fairly modest. Sam, of what we're seeing, um, the transitions, the changes in the nature of work, you talked about some of them. Um, you know, one of them that I think you had hinted at as well that was mentioned in this piece by 60 Minutes is that there are, I can't remember the exact number, but there are you know a few million women who are previously in the workforce who have left the workforce and the ones who are not uh, returning, um, a good number of them are women who have young children at home. So there's a change somewhat in the nature of the, the workforce and of that work-life balance of women who seem to want to stay home and, and raise children. At least that seems to be suggested in the data there. As we're seeing all of these transitions, while understanding, as, as Acton will talk about, you know, the importance uh, and the value of work, what changes uh, 
A, do you think are most important to be, you know, or, or at least are you uh, most content about being retained going forward um, as ones that uh, kind of coincide and, and work well with that concept of work that we have and which ones strike you as the most troubling? Well, the first I would say is that not all work is compensated, right? Not all work is financially compensated. So I think it's worth keeping in mind that maybe some people are saying, I work, I work with my children, or I work at my art or my literature or whatever it happens to be, and I'm quite content with that. I'm not expecting to be paid for it. Maybe I'll get something, maybe I won't. I'm, but that's not the reason I understand the purpose of my work. And that's not a bad thing, I think, to happen, to have people understand that not all forms of work are financially compensated, should be financially compensated, or are expected to be financially compensated. So that's the first thing. The second thing I would say is that the way that work um, really permeates our lives is really quite extraordinary. And I think it's good for people to be thinking about, given the degree to which work permeates everyone's lives, whether they're teenagers, whether they're millennials, whether they're an older demographic or whether they're retired, to understand its importance and therefore to understand the importance of making good decisions about what it is we do when we work and how we work and where we find satisfaction in our work and understanding that we shouldn't be we shouldn't be def uh, we shouldn't be thinking about work purely in terms of income income's very important i'm not downgrading or dismissing the importance of that but i do think there are many people who are earning enormous sums of money i know some of these people who are deeply unhappy with their work, who don't find it interesting, who find it a chore, who are doing it because they've ever either gotten the treadmill and they don't know how to get off, or because they think that this is what they're supposed to be doing with their lives, even though they're deeply unhappy. So maybe if there is a rethinking, a wider rethinking of the nature of work and the purpose of work and understanding just how integral it is to our lives, and I think that's a good thing. The negative side... I think, is the expectation that I see with uh, some of the younger students I deal with in America and around the world, a type of expectation that there is the perfect job out there that is uniquely suited to me, that's just waiting for me to find it, and when I find it, I'll be happy forever. And I think that's not a particularly realistic understanding of work or the nature of the labor market or how people's work figures as they develop and grow in their careers over time. It's not a bad thing for people to have to do forms of work that they don't particularly find satisfactory. It's not a bad thing for people to understand that, that there are aspects of any job, even a job that you find enormously fulfilling, there are aspects of that job that you don't particularly like, but that's part of the reality of what it means to work 
in an imperfect world. So I was looking at some of this data and I saw things like, well, I, I don't like my colleagues and uh, I find that that's a reason for me to go and just find another job. Well, I looked at that and I thought, but you're not going to like everyone in any organization that you find yourself in. So my point is, I think there are some unrealistic expectations that are starting to emerge, which are at least being reflected in some of this very preliminary data that I was looking at, that I think is not particularly helpful when it comes to people thinking about the relationship between work as something that can be fulfilling in itself and the way that it gets worked out or manifested in particular forms of employment. Sam is right, of course, that uh, um, money does not fix everything. And, and to sum up what he said there in the words of uh, the notorious B.I.G., uh, mo' money, mo' problems. So maybe let's now turn to the words of President Joe Biden, who is out there pushing for uh, various reforms to the way that we handle elections in the United States. And because uh, we as a political culture are eternally captive to um, the, the ideas of Aaron Sorkin's West Wing, where the only thing that is necessary to change the course of history and get everybody on your side is to just go out there and give a really good speech. He went to Atlanta in order to give a speech promoting um, not the For the People Act, which was the a initial essentially federalization of, uh, of state elections, which is essentially what's in that proposal and is one of those great examples of how a new problem comes along. And oh, my goodness, it just so happens that this thing that they've been pushing for people have been pushing forever just happens to be the perfect thing to address it. Uh, but what I'm struck by in this speech is we've spent a lot of time on on this program and uh, a lot of people have spent a lot of time talking about the problems in the tone and the tenor of the conversations we are having in American political life. And that was certainly a key focal point of the last election. Certainly Donald Trump's rhetoric was a key a key thing a lot of people had a problem with, that even if they may have liked the outcomes of the Trump administration, they kind of just wanted this guy out of their headspace 24-7. And which is why it's all the more amazing to me that the man who campaigned promising a return to normalcy and to bring the temperature down goes to Atlanta and gives a speech that includes this passage. So I ask every elected official in America, how do you want to be remembered? At consequential moments in history, they present a choice. Do you want to be on the side of Dr. King or George Wallace? Do you want to be on the side of John Lewis or Bull Connor? Do you want to be on the side of Abraham Lincoln or Jefferson Davis? Are these our only choices? Uh, I, I kind of think that maybe there's some middle ground there where one can disagree on the concept of federalizing our elections and not be Bull Connor. What, Steve, do you think that this is, you know, for somebody, again, who had promised to turn the temperature down, are we just on a trajectory to have ever increasing heated rhetoric about 
everything that we're trying to talk about that just decreases the likelihood that problems, there are real problems, maybe we'll get to that in a minute, that when it comes to our elections, it just decreases the likelihood that they're ever going to get solved. Yeah, that's terribly unfortunate. I think that uh, irrespective of what people thought would would uh, would happen, you know, when Joe Biden took office, I think generally speaking, regardless of whether or not you agree with his policies, that people were hoping that there would be a change in the rhetoric. And clearly that's not the case with this most recent example. And I think it's actually uh, accelerating in terms of just the, the the demagoguery that's going on. And, you know, when it comes down to this, what, what's I think particularly disturbing is that I don't think anyone in the United States would disagree with the notion that on the one hand, you can't have free for all, anything goes, right, with respect to how you run an election in your state. And you also can't put unnecessary barriers that hinder people from being able to exercise their right to vote. And so somewhere you get then to the details of how to actually implement that for your state, given those two, uh, two, two considerations. And so unless you talk about the details, right, you're just just using this as an opportunity, right, to to inflame people who don't agree with your perspective, which is what President Biden has done here. And, and you know, what else is quite interesting is if you were to take a look on a state-by-state state basis, right, there's a lot of variability, a lot of variability. And Georgia's move to what they've, you know, what they're now doing for their elections is certainly not the most restrictive, right? I think it's, they have the extremes of New Hampshire and California in terms of their election laws. And New Hampshire tends to be fairly restrictive, and yet they have the highest voting percentage uh, of eligible voters in the country, whereas California tends to be less restrictive and the participation rate is not nearly as as high. So, you know, it's just – it is unfortunate that you're seeing this as just a springboard to – to demonize your opponent as opposed to an opportunity to really take a look at these two perspectives and figure out how we can navigate this and how states ought to handle their election. The Georgia legislation, whether or not you think it was wise or necessary to put it in context, as you just alluded to there, Steve, um, in if we're going to compare Georgia to New York, uh, Georgia has 17 days of early voting, nine in New York. Georgia allows no excuse absentee voting in 2020. New York uh, passed a bill signed by then Governor Andrew Cuomo allowing people to use COVID as an excuse. Um, A ballot initiative to allow no excuse voting failed by a healthy margin in 2021. So what what to me and and strikes me particularly today on Martin Luther King Day is – Built into this rhetoric again from the president is this idea that what we're talking about is, that has you know, been passed in in Georgia and some other states um, is approaching Jim Crow 2.0 or it actually at one point in time, just to add some preposterousness to the rhetoric around all of this, uh, the president referred to it as not Jim Crow but Jim Eagle, which I'm not entirely certain what that means, but I think I get a sense of it. Uh, it's – Bizarre. And it is incredibly insulting to what Jim Crow actually was. Jonah Goldberg's um, piece at the Dispatch from last Wednesday had a good point about this, that the the important stuff in Jim Crow, like, look, were there restrictions on um, people voting in Jim Crow? Certainly. Was that more or less important in context than the fact that Jim Crow as a regime essentially allowed people to get away with political violence and with lynchings, that it allowed it, – it restricted people's ability going back to the work point to use their talents meaningfully, to effectively move and vote with their feet. 
Um, these things were abhorrent. It was essentially an apartheid regime. And to suggest that election reforms that largely return us to the status quo ante before the pandemic, that roll back voting changes that addressed the pandemic circumstances, amount to bringing back Jim Crow is just such incredibly irresponsible rhetoric that I think I should be shocked by, but perhaps I'm just incapable of being shocked by anything anymore. Well, if I might interject there, I had a number of thoughts when I saw that. I thought, well, first of all, the the rhetoric that is being employed here is something I suspect a good number of Democrats are going to find very difficult to support because it is so obviously over the top. To say that because you uh, have some questions about this act that the Biden administration wants to push through and you're not sure whether it's a good thing, that that makes you the equivalent of the president of the Confederate States of America, Jefferson Davis. I was heartened, and and frankly, to see or to read that people like uh, Senator Durbin of Illinois, who's not a moderate Democrat, I think he's very much a left-wing Democrat, even he said that he thought the president had gone over the top in using this type of rhetoric. The second thing I would say is that this type of rhetoric now is permeating all parts of American political discourse. The playing of the race card in American political discourse is is omnipresent in many respects. If you oppose this, you are a racist. If you raise a question about X, you are a racist. If you express doubts about such and such a policy, clearly you are a racist. If you think that affirmative action is fundamentally problematic on the level of justice, as I do, you are apparently a racist. Maybe you don't even know that you are a racist, but you are a racist. And the point, of course, is to shut down discussion, to stigmatize certain positions as being unworthy of consideration. And we find this everywhere. And it's no wonder that people, when they hear themselves called a racist because they think that, no, I do believe that on election day, that is the day that everyone should vote who wants to vote and that exceptions for that should be exceptions rather than this type of blank slate to vote three months before the actual election. And you're called a racist for saying that? It's no wonder that we see so much of the United States becoming polarized and neither side being particularly interested in listening to each other. There's, uh, particularly in these conversations about elections, there's so much to me that is uh, aggravating. Um, uh, To throw out another uh, polling number here, uh, in 2016, Gallup found that four in five Americans support voter ID requirements. Now, we have, to the point that Sam was just making, I've heard repeatedly over the last 10 to 15 years that any calls for voter ID are inherently racist. In Chicago right now, to go into a Starbucks and sit down and drink your cup of coffee, you have to show not only your vaccine card, but a driver's license or form of government ID. So I need it for a venti mocha latte, but not for voting. 
And I think regular people look at this and see how bizarro that is, that look at the kind of rhetoric that comes from people in this case, like the president, but there are certainly other examples that we can point to that essentially boil down to people who want to cosplay civil war, that want to LARP as revolutionaries. And I think part of it is no matter how much the rhetoric like this suggests that things are particularly bad right now. And look, we spent a lot of time on this podcast talking about things that are problems because we think problems exist and they're important to be addressed. But comparing the level of institutionalized racism in 2022 to even the 19, you know, the 1990s, the 1970s, certainly not the height of Jim Crow, there's just so much less of it. And in a weird way, I think because there's so much less of it, there's just need to inject a greater importance in eradicating the little bit of what's left. There's this observable phenomenon too in societies, the more egalitarian that they become, the less tolerant they are of any kind of differences. Uh, I think we see that here with the passion that's put behind problems that I think, again, there's problems with voting in this country that are real, but we ratchet it up to this ridiculous level that I think should disgust a lot of people. And, and I think the good news is it does. Yeah. And I think uh, just like uh, Senator Durbin, as Sam referenced, uh, indicated President Biden was himself over the top and going too far. I think that generally speaking, you're seeing evidence in polls and so forth that people are just getting really tired of this. That even those who are sympathetic um, to some of the claims and even some of the more extreme claims, I think they're starting to recognize, you know, this this is really over the top. So, uh, you know, I hope that over time and perhaps, you know, it's going to take time just to get out of this habit. But if we continue down this path, it doesn't bode well for, you know, national, you know, dialogue and and working across the aisle and trying to actually solve problems, uh, whether it be at the community level or the federal level. Uh, these things we just need to move away from. And I think people are starting to get weary across the board of this kind of talk. Let's move here to our final topic, which was over the weekend. Um, there was a hostage taking situation in Texas. Uh, where a band by the name of Malik Faisal Akram uh, took hostage a rabbi and three congregants at a synagogue uh, not too far outside of Dallas. Uh, I have a good friend who is a rabbi. I've discussed this with him before, that it is kind of commonplace now that for uh, Jews going to shul that they have security guards there that there are police outside. And you, know, you can look at it with a sense of sadness that this uh, was perceived to be necessary. But I think there was a clear reminder on Saturday of why these things seem to be necessary. We, we were just talking in the last segment about um, racism, about those kinds of motivations for people's hatred and actions that come from that kind of hatred. We've seen for a while now that the category that is the highest for those kinds of biased crimes are anti-Semitic incidents. And we see an example of this again on Saturday. But what was incredible to me was the inability of some people in the media and in positions of political responsibility to identify simple facts about this case 
to state as Jen Psaki, the press secretary, uh, did in a statement or didn't state in a statement, didn't mention the word synagogue. Uh, there was this bizarre statement in the Associated Press of, you know, that, oh, they think it was an issue unrelated to the Jewish community, uh, which raises an interesting question of why in particular it was a synagogue on Saturday during worship that this person went into with a gun. Um, one can say that calling for the release of a person who has been imprisoned on terrorism charges is unrelated to the Jewish community in one understanding and completely understand why it's not unrelated to the Jewish community in another understanding. At this time, Sam, as you had talked about, where racism gets thrown around so easily, why is there the seeming reticence to identify things that look and quack like anti-Semitism as anti-Semitism, especially given the very long-run, sad long-run history of anti-Semitism throughout the world, really throughout time? Well, this is a subject I have a lot of thoughts about, and I'll confess I get very worked up about this. I have many Jewish friends. I have many Jewish friends in Israel, in the United States, and around the world, but particularly in Israel. And they will tell you that the degree to which anti-Semitism is on the rise throughout Western countries. So we're not even just talking about large parts of the Arab world where you see vicious anti-Semitic literature, images, films produced and propagated by highly authoritarian regimes all the time. You find this, this coded anti-Semitism pervading particularly Western Europe, I would say, uh, but significant portions of American political discourse. It's often wrapped up as, as um, objections to the state of Israel or policies of the state of Israel. But when you dig down and you look at the type of words that are being used, when you see some of the imagery that is being deployed, including in places like the New York Times, you realize that much of this is a vehicle for this poison, this poison, this intellectual, cultural, and moral poison to re-permeate societies in which you would think that uh, – 80 years after the Shoah began, we would have learnt our lesson. And clearly, significant portions of American society, particularly on the left, I have to say, have in many respects reappropriated and re-engineered this disease and now are using it in such a way that it becomes impossible to actually, for some people, like apparently significant people in the Biden administration, but in, as you pointed out, in the mass media, particularly the mainstream media, to call and name this disease for what it is. So that's the really troubling thing, that this, this way of thinking, this way of talking, 
is now becoming so far spread throughout society, including in the United States, that it's actually preventing us from saying, no, this person who is listed in Britain as uh, someone who is considered problematic from the standpoint of national security is going into a synagogue where there are Jews on Shabbat and he is posing a direct threat for them. Why can't we actually say what was actually going on here? Why can't we do that? And I think that that broader background that I just referred to, which is, as I said, often wrapped up in all this anti-Israel stuff, which I happen to think is is essentially the same as anti-Semitism in many respects, uh, is just so far spread now that it has corrupted our ability to say the truth about these things. I did an interview for Act in Line. We'll put the interview in the show notes with my friend Rabbi Jonathan Greenberg, who uh, where we talked about anti-Semitism. And he described it the same way that Sam just did, that it is a disease and that the question of why it exists is significantly less important to him than asking the question, what do we do about it? And I think Sam is absolutely correct that one of the things that we should do about this problem, as well as we should do about a lot of other problems, despite the kind of stifling circumstances that we sometimes seem to be living in now, where people are afraid to say things that are actually true, that we need that sense of courage to be able to call things what they are so that we can have a conversation about it, that we can say that this is an attack motivated by anti-Semitism, even if the Associated Press won't see it, even if the spokespeople for the Biden administration won't say it, even if whatever publication whatever public official won't say it, we can say this is anti-Semitism, this represents a threat to our Jewish brothers and sisters, and that we should be cognizant of that and exploring what we can do to help stop the spread of this disease. Because as Sam said, after the Holocaust, we all like to self-righteously proclaim never again. And we can certainly look around the world at circumstances. We talked plenty about China on this program where we look at what China is doing to a Uyghur Muslim minority population, which is, again, that's what it is. It is the same kind of thing that we saw in the Holocaust being perpetrated on a different religious minority now, but it is the same thing again, and people are willing to look the other way for plenty of reasons. Yeah, and we we certainly can't look the other way. I mean, it's it's discouraging. I think our, our whole cultural environment with the social media and cancel culture and so forth, it strikes me that people at the same time are just being too calculating in what they say rather than just speaking the truth in love. And, uh, and calling calling a spade a spade. You know, I think people are, are too hesitant and they stop and say, well, how, how and what reaction might this get? Rather than just say, hey, here are the facts. Here are the facts. Yeah. It's also worth noting here just how much this problem is manifesting itself in America's higher educational institutions. It's important to keep in mind that um, we find in many of these places – uh, BDS, which is boy, boycott, um, boycott, divest, uh, and sanction. Divest, divest, and sanction the state of Israel is an orthodoxy in many of these places. And I like to point out when I've come across this, and I've had to deal with people who talk, who talk in these terms, I will say things like, 
you do understand that the state of Israel is the only democratic society in the Middle East. You do understand that Arabs, be they Muslim or Christian, get to vote. You do understand that they are accorded all the full rights of citizenship. You do understand that they have a high level of economic freedom compared to the disastrous authoritarian uh, statist regimes that surround them. You do understand that this is a society whose existence, whose right to even exist in the first place is questioned by some of the regimes uh, that surround them. And they, they, they don't care. I found that people, when you raise these points, they simply don't care because that is the new orthodoxy when it comes to some of these subjects within the academy. And that's troubling because that's what a lot of people hear when they go to college. And I can tell you, I know um, uh, uh, Jewish young men and women who are in these universities who are having to listen to this rhetoric all the time and they try and push back against it and then they're, of course, called neo-colonial, apologists for a neo-colonial oppressive regime. That's how bad things are. That interview that I had with Rabbi Greenberg, and again, we'll include that in the show notes, I asked him at the end of the program, what can the average person do about anti-Semitism? And, and while he acknowledged that there's that kind of great, great collective action problem there, there's not a whole lot that any one individual can do about something like that. The one thing that he did recommend that I think is good, and I will share it here for everyone, which is uh, your local church, your parish, wherever you attend religious services, um, find the local synagogue and reach out to them and just get together. Just get together and get to know the those people in your community and make sure that they know, I mean, especially as you know, there's three Catholics talking here, um, the history of discrimination against Catholics in this country. Um, we don't need to play a, you know, is it totally comparable to what Jews have been through in America or anywhere else. Um, but there's there's a lot to talk about there. And there's a lot of commonality and a lot of common ground that can be shared and a lot of important support that I think um, we should all be offering to uh, American Jews right now in what are really uh, troubling circumstances that I think both of you have done a, a good job of highlighting. Or even, even this point, Eric, just to know that synagogues in the United States need to have armed security on for Shabbat, mm-hmm. that th- this is just a matter of course now. How can that be the case? How can it be the case that this, this minority, which has given so much to the United States, um, the people who were the first to hear the one true God, that their synagogues have to be protected by armed guards in the United States. To me, that is appalling. It should be intolerable. Let's call it a wrap there. Thank you for listening to Acton Unwind. If you're listening to this podcast on our website, we thank you, but we ask you to please take a look in the show notes where you're going to find a link where you can subscribe directly to Acton Unwind, or you can just search Acton Unwind on your favorite podcast app. 
Also, please take a moment to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, five-star reviews only, and please leave us a comment in your review as well. We greatly appreciate those. That will help more people find this show. Thanks to Sam. Thanks to Steve. For the Acton Institute, this is Eric Cohn. We'll see you next week.